The Mark Stein Show. And now, here's Mark. August 18th. 2020. No, I don't have anything to say about the Democrats' virtual convention. If you're interested in that, check out the Twitter feeds of, oh, uh, Bette Midler, Rob Reiner, Cher, Mia Farrow, all of whom seem to be enjoying it. Or if you prefer the Twitter feed of the late-night comedian Samantha B, who says it's the first convention to feel like a PBS pledge drive... Uh, which I think is the last time I saw Bette Midler, Rob Reiner, Cher and Mia Farrow so enthused. I've said for many years now, including between hard covers, that diversity is where nations go to die. With respect to China, Stein clubber Paul Nuckman seems to think John Derbyshire, uh, my old Comrade from National Review, John Derbyshire, got to it first. Um, but I rather think I did uh, back when this COVID thing started in March, uh, both here and on Rush. It's not important. Uh, it's a fairly obvious observation, but it's worth making because it's so at odds with contemporary thinking that the one great advantage China has is that it's a very old-fashioned, ethnically homogenous nation-state. It has 1.4 billion people, of whom over 80% are Han Chinese. That's to say, over a billion all the same ethnic group. To be sure, it has minorities like the Uyghurs, whom it treats appallingly, but it's precisely because its minorities are such a tiny minority uh, that they're irrelevant to the country's future as a global superpower. Um, so all the time that we spend talking about, say, racism, which is to say all the available time there is, racial reckoning, social justice, long overdue, all the available time uh, that we spend talking about racism, China has free to talk about other things, which is one reason why they're number one and we're going down the toilet of history in the most pathetic civilizational suicide ever. So no, I don't want to join Bet, Cher, Mia, Rob and Samantha in covering a ludicrous convention of third-rate virtue signalling that has nothing honest to say about the state of the nation it presumes to govern. For one thing, you'd think the gap between progressive self-mythologizing and grim reality would by now have become simply unfeasible even for many Democrats. On the one hand, there's Portlandia, the hit TV show exec produced by Saturday Night Live's Lorne Michaels about goofy hipsters and the guest stars who can't wait to be seen with them. Sarah McLachlan, Kirsten Dunst, Jeff Goldblum, Katie Lang... And on the other hand, there's Portland. Has the Democrat convention got anything to say about Portland? Well, they're in favor of it. Here's Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. Right now, we are managing against converging public health and economic crises amid a national reckoning on racial injustice in this country. Communities from Boston to Portland and everywhere in between are rising up to demand accountability and divestment from broken systems. 
They're rising up all right to put you in a coma if you happen to rub them the wrong way. This is the reality of an American city in 2020, where at the Black Lives Matter protest, a transgender lady gets beaten and robbed and a nice gentleman who tries to intercede also gets beaten and robbed. In fact, they rob him after they put him in a coma. There are no police around because Portland is now unpoliced, so it should even be more of a Portlandia utopia. Um, but even if there were police, they'd likely just stand around and watch, as they did with Michelle Malkin, when as a very vocal supporter of the police, she organized a Back the Blue rally in Denver, Colorado, and anti-cop thugs showed up and beat her up, while the cops, the blue she was there to back, just stood there and watched with faintly bored, uh, amused expressions. This man in Portland doesn't seem like a right-winger, a racist clansman. He's trying to help a not terribly prepossessing tranny, which is very gallant of him, and he's in a coma because he underestimated the rage on the street. The name of the man who put him in the coma is known, Marquise Lee Love. Uh, maybe he doesn't pronounce it in the... Uh, continental way, maybe it's Marquisley Love, I don't know. Um, but it's known, Marquise, M-A-R-Q-U-I-S-E, Lee Love, and he's walking around because there is no longer law in Portland. Here's another man trying to help the transgender lady on the ground uh, whose uh, possessions they've stolen. He's not a white racist either. He's a black man, so they call him the N-word repeatedly. Did you hear that? We're out here for Black Lives Matter. Fuck these white cunts. As you know, for almost 20 years, and almost alone on the internet, Stein Online has had a no-swearing policy. But these are now the only words anyone knows in a society of grunting morons, and I don't want to be deplatformed for breaking community standards. So in the interest of eking out another month on Facebook and Twitter, fuck you, cunt, no, cunt, you, fuck. Fuck, fuck, fuckity, cunty, cunty, fuck, fuck, fuck. That's all it is now. Since this thing started, I haven't said a single word in favour of Black Lives Matter. And like either Dolly Parton or many of my so-called conservative colleagues at so-called conservative institutions around the world, I called this the March of the Morons and said it would soon evolve from smashing statues to smashing people because it's an evil, thuggish racket of ignorance from which nothing good can come. Would you want to live in a jurisdiction run by these people who have the run of the streets in Seattle and Portland, or by people who feel they have to be beholden to these people? I wouldn't, and nor would Bette Midler or Samantha Bee or Congresswoman Ayanna Presley. The only difference is that I'm happy to say it, and they're not. 
Uh, but that's not how Black Lives Matter is being presented to the world. Most of the sources from which most Americans get their news aren't seeing the tranny get jumped and her would-be Galahad put in a coma. Uh, because these are famously mostly peaceful protests, and once you've decided on that, the tranny bashing isn't helpful. So what can we fill up the half hour of crap on the CBS Evening News with instead? Well, how about this sob-sister drivel? If you have been in a hospital, you've seen them, but possibly paid them little mind. I'm talking about scrubs, the clothing worn by employees. Now, traditionally, their different colors signaled someone's job, but in the wake of the pandemic and protests for racial justice, Two doctors are changing the dress code. Jesse Mitchell has the story. Blue and green scrubs are what most doctors wear when they suit up. But these Alabama doctors are going with a new look, looking to make a change. We recognize that if there's health care disparity, that yes, black lives matter most right now. The new push for racial equality across the country inspired the two doctors to wear black scrubs to show support for black lives. What has the response been to this statement? The first time was, hey, why are you wearing these scrubs? And so, you know, it obviously comes up as a conversation piece. Oh, oh, isn't that nice? When the men in white coats come to drag the CBS news editors off to the funny farm, at least there'll be men in black coats. If that guy in Portland ever comes out of his coma, I'm sure he'll be really impressed to see the doctors wearing black scrubs. That's what most of the country thinks Black Lives Matter is. Oh yes, Black Lives Matter. So when I invite the other nice ladies round for tea, I get out my all-black tea service from the NPR Pledge Drive. It's fine bone china, but completely black with hashtag BLM in a very tasteful sansory font, just 10 point, so we're not being overly ostentatious about it. And this is the reality. Ah, but the guy was in Portland, so he was asking for it. OK, these are just baristas of the usual minority extraction in a crappy chain coffee shop. So they were just asking for it too when the angry black woman uh, gagging for a coffee felt she was being disrespected. Shut up! Make my own fucking coffee. Yeah, because you guys want to make my shit, right? You fucking goof. Get the fuck out of here. As a gazillion people on Twitter said, I hope she's ordered decaf. You're racist and you're wasting my time. Call the police. Black Lives Matter. Call the police. I'm not going to hit anybody. Shut the fuck up, you guys. Call the police, bitch. You make my fucking coffee. But is it really funny? I mean, nobody knows, do they? Is she just going to hurl boiling coffee pots around and overturn a few display cases of stale donuts? Or has she got some friends nearby who might want to put you in a coma? So you get to go to the hospital and experience the electric frisson of being operated on by men and women so committed to social justice that they're wearing black scrubs. 
I expect Rob Reiner and Cher usually send a minion to get the coffee, so these questions aren't yet confronting them on a daily basis. But for more and more people, they're arising rather sooner than one might have thought. I'm thousands of miles away from America right now. Which is quite relaxing, but at some point I have to come back until the lockdown... I used to fly into Montreal and be met by a car that would drive me the shortest shortish distance back to my pad in New Hampshire. But direct flights into Montreal were one of the first things to be uh, cut by the airlines when the COVID hit. Uh, and in any case, the US-Canadian border is closed. So that's all a big hassle. So now I've got to fly into some American city and then connect to some rare non-cancelled puddle jumper uh, to get me up to the granite state and I was sort of figuring I wouldn't be in the mood for the little cramped uh, puddle jumper uh, after a long-haul flight so maybe somebody uh, might like to come and uh, meet me at the big city airport and I don't know whether Bette Midler's having this problem with her minions uh, but mine said they'd heard there were now random BLM checkpoints popping up on the interstates and they'd rather not take the risk. Which is fair enough, actually, because these are tough judgment calls and you don't generally realise it's all gone south until you're like that guy in Portland on the ground with Marquise Lee Love or Marquise Lee Love booting you in the skull. Or maybe you don't realise it at all until you're in the coma. Because you're 47 and you've watched CBS News every night, so you're as naive as Canon Hinnant, the five-year-old white boy executed, there's really no other word, executed by a black man. That story isn't on the news either. Why, why would it be? It's irrelevant to the narrative. When you can be fired, and it can also be career-threatening, because when you can be fired for suggesting that all lives matter... Uh, the logical conclusion is that therefore all lives don't matter and you'd have to be insane to bring up the execution of a five-year-old white boy at the morning conference for what passes for news in America. To come back to where we started, the rise of China is the biggest issue facing the world right now. And we're not even discussing it uh, because we're too busy committing civilizational suicide. The Chinese all agree they're Chinese and they like being Chinese and they got no plans to stop being Chinese. That's not true of Americans, particularly young Americans. Uh, among young Americans, large numbers of whites want to be anything but white. Oh, yes, I'm not black, of course, but I'm conscious. I'm conscious of my white guilt. I'm never not conscious of my white guilt. So I advertise it by wearing black scrubs in my Chicago hospital to operate on all the black victims of black crime they bring in every Saturday night. Don't worry, it's not like wearing blackface. It's just black chest and black arms. So that's okay. Whites want to be anything but white. Straights want to be anything but straight. Men want to be women. For, for all their problems... China and the Chinese people know they're Chinese and are happy being Chinese. Which would you bet on? OK, a little bit of Democrat election coverage. This is John Thompson.
a Democrat candidate for the Minnesota House of Representatives who's been endorsed by fraternophiliac Ilan Omar, the Minnesota Attorney General Keith Ellison, and Minnesota Governor Tim Waltz. Waltz! What a genteel name. I had the last waltz with you. We are having the last waltz with Tim Waltz, the last waltz of our civilization. So here's a Democrat candidate John Thompson yelling at some white grown ups and children in a suburban cul de sac. Is he going to be keynoting at the Democrat convention? As I said, which of the competing superpowers would you bet on? And even if you thought the land of John Thompson and Marquise Lee Love and Tim Waltz and Keith Ellison and Ilan Omar were worth saving, are you entirely convinced it can be saved? Enough of this bile. I feel uh, filthy just playing these clips. I'm all motherfuckered out. So the rest of the show will be a motherfucker-free zone and we will resume our no-swear policy. Let's move on. Escape the quarantine by delving into fantastic fiction chosen and read by Mark Stein himself in Stein's Tales for Our Time. Thrillers, mysteries, science fiction, romance. Tales that transcend genre. Everything from classics to titles hidden in the upper shelves. Mark Stein Club members can listen to the full catalog of nearly three dozen tales for our time. Hear them all by going to www.steinonline.com slash T-F-O-T. The Mark Stein Club presents The Hundred Years Ago Show. The vote that enfranchised half the population, a mammy singer in Marion, and the reenactment of a murder. It's August 1920. A hundred years from today. Your World News Update. The messy aftermath of the Great War continues. The new French mandate of Syria has had three prime ministers this year, and it's only August, the latest was its shortest serving after just 26 days in office. Allah al-Din al-Durubi is dead, along with the Minister of War, the Minister of the Interior, and 27 others. His train was stopped just south of the Turkish border at Darat Izar, where a group of men boarded the Prime Minister's carriage, murdered the ministers, and then left. French troops at Katowice in Germany were attacked by striking coal workers and fired into the crowd. They are reported to have killed 10 miners. Meanwhile, Polish residents of Katowice, resentful of what they regard as German occupation, have risen up, and at least eight civilians are now dead. In Ireland, 
Republican revolutionaries have shot and killed a Royal Irish Constabulary policeman accused of murdering the Lord Mayor of Cork, Thomas McCurtain. Inspector Oswald Swansea was walking home from church service in Lisbon when three men with rifles confronted him and opened fire before escaping in a waiting taxicab. Inspector Swansea is the eighth RIC officer to be shot and killed this last week. Rioting has followed along with the burning of Catholic-owned businesses and homes in Lisbon and Belfast's Shankill district. Where did Robinson Crusoe go with Friday on Saturday night? Every Saturday night they were start in the road and on Sunday morning they come staggering home. On this island live wild men in cannibals trimming. And you know where there are wild men, there must be wild women. So where did Robinson Crusoe go with Friday on Saturday night? Never mind where did Robinson Crusoe go with Friday on Saturday night. Where did the famous singer of that song go with 70 other Broadway actors on Tuesday night. Al Jolson went to Warren Harding's front porch in Marion, Ohio, to endorse Senator Harding for president. And on the train there, he wrote a campaign song for the Republican candidate, Harding, you're the man for us, because he'll make the White House shine out just like a lighthouse. Introducing the number from the senator's porch to an adoring throng of Marianites and thespians, the beloved Mammy singer and enthusiastic supporter of the Republican cause declared himself president of the Harding Coolidge Theatrical League. Getting into the spirit of things, Senator Harding mused about plays he had enjoyed and compared himself with the protagonist of Shakespeare's Charles V, a drama hitherto unknown to scholars or audiences. Uh, Shakespeare's Charles V, who had walked among his soldiers to learn of their concerns, just as the GOP nominee had learned of voters' concerns by standing on his front porch in Marion. Johnson's support for the Republican contender has stunned veteran political observers who cannot recall an instance of a star of similar luster taking such an active stand for a party candidate. Show business professionals suggest celebrity involvement in politics is unlikely to catch on, and Democrats seem to see it, along with the $15 million donated by wealthy Republicans to Senator Harding, as just another example of GOP supporters trying to buy the presidency. Yonder, we used to wonder.
Mooning over girls in blue jeans is all very well, but will it be women wearing the trousers this November and deciding whether it's Warren Harding or James Cox who becomes president? In the Tennessee House of Representatives, a resolution to table consideration of the 19th Amendment until after the election failed on a 48-48 tie and members proceeded to vote on whether to concur with the Tennessee Senate's approval of the amendment. One of those who'd voted to kick the can down the road, a 24-year-old representative called Harry T. Byrne, then decided to vote for the resolution, breaking the tie, and thus became the deciding vote that will give millions of American women the vote. There are now calls for a grand jury investigation into whether young Mr. Byrne was bribed, but he says he did it because of his mother, Feb Ensminger Byrne, who runs the family farm. Hurrah and vote for suffrage, she instructed him by letter last month. Harry Byrne has responded to attacks on his integrity by inserting into the House Journal a personal statement that, quote, a mother's advice is always safest for a boy to follow. And thus one Tennessee mama's boy has made American history. We all learned during the war that government can grow very big, but can it get small again? Why, yes, it can. For three years, the United States Food Administration has been charged with controlling food distribution in America and providing relief to starving nations because of the Great War. But the war is over, and now so is the U.S. Food Administration, abolished by executive order. At the Olympic Games in Antwerp, Hannes Kolleminen of Finland has won the marathon and set a new world record of 2 hours 32 minutes and 35.8 seconds, despite having to run through mud and rain. In other sports news, it's not all politics and play actors in Harding and Cox's Ohio. A quartet of the state's football team owners met at Ralph Hayes Automobile Showroom in Canton among the Pierce Arrows and Jordan Hupmobiles. Aside from Hayes Canton Bulldogs, there were represented the Akron Pros, the Dayton Triangles, and the Cleveland Tigers. The four teams agreed to form the nation's first pro football league to be known as the American Professional Football Conference. More sport. At a bullring in Barcelona, six amateur toreadors were killed by an enraged bull. Some of the bullfighters were gored and others trampled by the animal before it could be stopped and brought under control. We have reported in recent months on wireless broadcasts in Canada and England, but now uh, the wireless broadcast has come to America with the first transmission to radio sets in private houses in Michigan. 8MK is a new station set up by William E. Scripps, owner of the Detroit News, the first such station in America, and operated from the second floor of his newspaper building. The first voice ever to be heard on an American wireless transmission belongs to Elton Plant, an office boy at the news who was given the historic opportunity by Mr. Scripps because he has a good speaking and singing voice. The first broadcast is thought to have been heard by listeners in at least 30 
homes throughout Detroit. A rather wider broadcast area has been claimed by the world's most powerful transmitter at the Lafayette station near Bordeaux in France. Its initial transmission was listened to across the Atlantic in Washington, D.C., by the U.S. Secretary of the Navy, Josephus Daniels, who proclaimed that this is the first wireless message to be heard around the world and marks a milestone on the road of scientific achievement. By the sea, by the sea, by the beautiful sea, you and I, you and I, oh, how happy we be. The flashing waves, rolling in, we will duck. The sea can be beautiful but cruel. The American mission in Bombay organized a beach picnic for local school children. A dozen of them waded out to a sandbank, but were taken by surprise by a sudden wave at high tide and drowned. 29 people are dead after the American freighter the SS Superior City hit another vessel, the Willis L. King, on Lake Superior. One of just four survivors said that members of the crew were calmly donning lifebelts and waiting for the orders to board the lifeboats when the ship's boilers suddenly exploded. The vessel went down two minutes later. In France, they call it a cream passionnelle, but there was very little passion, as the radical poetess, gambler, black mass worshipper, and salon habitué known as Erre Mertel reenacted for investigators her killing of Georges Bessarabo, her second husband, whose bloody corpse was found in the bottom of a trunk at Nancy Railway Station earlier this month. Betraying not a flicker of emotion, Madame Bessarabo, with the aid of a life-size dummy complete with her late husband's moustache, calmly took a pistol loaded with blanks and recreated the words of her final quarrel with Monsieur Bessarabo, mimicking the distinctive tones and inflections of the late oil magnate, a Romanian who had struck it rich in Tampico. Working herself up into an appropriately murderous rage, she screamed, seized the dummy by its throat, and pumped it full of bullets before putting it in the trunk. Then she turned back to the policeman, smiled and bowed and said, that was how I did it. On her return to the prison at Saint-Lazare, Madame Bessarabo and her daughter passed in the corridor Henri Désiré Landreau, the so-called Bluebeard of Gombay, who is said to have killed 13 of his fiancées. Monsieur Landreau removed his hat and bowed suavely to the daughter, Mademoiselle Jacques, saying, delighted to have the pleasure. Asked why he did not similarly greet the murderous mother, the alleged Bluebeard shuddered and then said, how fortunate I was never to have met her.
The Swedish artist Anders Zorn was famed for his portraits of the most prominent in society, including the King and Queen and three American presidents, Grover Cleveland, Theodore Roosevelt and William Howard Taft. But he also liked to paint nude, full-figured women to such a degree that ladies so bounteous and luxuriant have come to be referred to in Sweden as Zornkullers. If you are a Zornkuller, he did not get around to painting, you are out of luck. Anders Zorn is dead at 60. And that's the way of the world, August 1920. A hundred years from today. A hundred years from today. Oh, you know what this music means. Mark Stein's Last Call. If you listen to country music radio in America, you will surely know Bill Mack. He was on the airwaves for decades. The satellite cowboy, Bill Mack. Thank you very much, Larry. Larry, shut up. And hello, everybody. Yes, here's I, the satellite cowboy who rides again. Off the air, Bill Mack was a very fitfully successful songwriter. Thirteen-year-old Leanne Rhymes with a multi-platinum bestseller of Bill Mack's song Blue, a top ten country hit in America, top ten in Australia, number one in Canada. And after Leanne Rhymes, Bill Mack was a whole lot less blue. It won him the 1996 Grammy Award for Best Country Song, a 1996 Academy of Country Music Award for Song of the Year, plus a 1997 Country Music Association Awards nomination for Song of the Year and a 1997 Country Radio Music Awards nomination for Song of the Year. But the 1996 Best Country Song and 1997 Song of the Year was in fact four decades old, written a quarter century before Leanne Rhymes was even born. 1958. Uh, I was sitting in my home in Wichita Falls, Texas. Now, I'm not a great guitar man at all, but I had the guitar and I was in the key of C, which was about the only key I could pick in. So I'm, I'm just singing. Because it goes from C to E. Well, I liked it. And, and blue came to me just like that. No studying at all. The blue came to me. And uh, that night I went to the Nesman Recording Studios and recorded it. Three o'clock in the morning. And here. 
Snuff Garrett, who was a disc jockey in Wichita Falls, he was playing it and it became a, I wish I could say a regional hit, <laughs> it became a local hit thanks to Snuff Garrett. Four or five years after my recording of Blue came out, I went to San Antonio. Patsy was playing a show there. When I saw Patsy, I said, I've got this song I want you to hear. And I sang it to her back in the dressing room. Three o'clock in the morning. Klein liked the song, and then she died. And so Bill Mack had to wait till 1996 to get as close to a Patsy Klein take on Blue as he ever would in that Leanne Rimes arrangement. I don't remember writing the words down for Blue. I know I did when I went into Nesman's to record. But uh, when I wrote it, I had no idea. Of course, I had no idea what would happen 40 years later. It came easier than, well, it and drinking champagne both just came to me uh, almost immediately. I'm drinking champagne and feeling no pain till early morning. Dining and dancing with every pretty girl I can find. I'm having a fling with a pretty young thing Till early morning Knowing tomorrow I'll wake up with you on my mind Dean Martin's version of Bill Mack's Drinking Champagne. I saw Dean sing that on stage in London in the 80s. I'm having a fling with a pretty young thing till early morning, knowing tomorrow I'll wake up with you on my mind. Ah, we've all been there. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 91, disc jockey and songwriter Bill Mack. If you followed cricket in the 70s and 80s, you'll well remember the great Indian test captain and opening batsman Sunil Gavaskar. The other half of India's opening double act is a less starry name, Chetan Chauhan, but he was there partnering Gavaskar all the way in that glorious period for Indian cricket and occasionally busting out to claim the limelight for himself. With the Indian skipper back in the pavilion, the Aussies closed in for the kill, but the plucky Indians weren't going down without a fight. Oh, that's certainly not going to be the 50th wicket. Very well placed by Chauhan. First runs off Walters, the ball rolling away towards the boundary and just making it. Hogg did his best to catch it, but four runs. And again. Oh, that's in the air and just past Hughes's left hand. 
He dived and the ball beat his hand and went out to the boundary for four. So Chet and Chowen living dangerously. That's the end of Dougie Walters over. One for 52. That's a good shot. Played away on the offside. Square of the wicket by Vin Sarker. Jim Higgs after it and they'll get three. Chetan Chauhan was the first test cricketer in history to finish his playing career with over 2,000 runs, but never a century. Although I believe, um, and I uh, don't like to get too wisdom over this because I'm bound to make a mistake and Tim Rice will correct me, uh, but I believe the Aussie Shane Warne has since achieved that rather mixed milestone for himself. Uh, the biggest test of Chauhan's loyalty to Sunil Gavaskar came in the 1981 test against Australia. Uh, when the Indian captain was given an out uh, leg before wicket by the umpire Rex Whitehead, Gavaskar was furious about it and demanded that Chauhan walk off the pitch with him. The Indian captain, not happy, saying he may have hit that. What's going on? He's saying, please, please, what a tour. Gavaskar suggesting that he's got a thick edge onto that delivery. The man who's walked so often the series very annoyed with that decision pleading with Dennis Willey asking that he hit that ball let's have a look at it on replay well it's a very upset Gavaskar that ball keeping low he was very determined about the fact or very definite about the fact that he had hit it and uh, it's an annoyed man and he's still uh, not prepared to uh, not prepared to leave the ground and well what a sensation Ian cutting in there he's taking his opening bat off with him Does that mean he's declared or conceded the match surely not have a rethink Sunil when he gets in the calm of the dressing room I'm quite sure that his teammates will come back but he's a very very annoyed captain Chetan Chauhan was prevailed upon by the Indian manager to break with Gavaskar and returned to the wicket, which was just as well. Australia's batting collapsed in their second innings, and India won by 59 runs. After his cricketing career, Chauhan was elected to India's parliament twice, and then became sports minister for Uttar Pradesh. In 2016, he went viral on social media when he was appointed chairman of the National Institute of Fashion Technology. Now, Twitter users reacted to former cricketer Chetan Chauhan being appointed chairman of the National Institute of Fashion Technology, or NIFT, stitching elaborate jokes and making the 68-year-old trend on the social network for hours today. Mr. Chauhan, a two-time BJP lawmaker and vice president of the Delhi and District Cricket Association, or DDCA, as it's known, confirmed his appointment, but said he would only talk about it after taking charge on Monday. I don't see what's so funny. If uh, black goes with everything, so do cricketers whites. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 73, test cricketer, government minister and fashion guru Chetan Chauhan. Elsimar Coutinho came from a very prominent and wealthy Brazilian family, a descendant of the Marquis de Pombal, the 18th century chief minister and de facto ruler of the Portuguese Empire under Joseph I. Senor Coutinho lived well. His home was the former governor's mansion in Salvador, 
and his family owned and developed most of Itapua, the neighborhood made famous in the novels of Jorge Amado, in which Elsimar Coutinho appears as the prince of Itapua, and the music of Dorival Kami. <laughs> Tem torso de seda, tem, tem brinco de ouro, tem, corrente de ouro, tem, tem pano da costa, tem, tem pata rendada, tem. Carmen Miranda with OKK Abayana Tem. What is it about Bahian women? Well, whatever it is, it would be nice to be able to have sex with them without having to worry about anything unpleasant like pregnancy. So Elsimar Coutinho, a beneficiary of heredity, became a world-renowned obstructor of heredity in others. He was the gynecologist who discovered the first injectable contraceptive. He was the first to propose a pill containing Norgestrel, which is now the most commonly used contraceptive pill in the world. He wrong-footed himself just once. In Budapest, I fui fazer a defesa de bom, dependendo do apoio das mulheres. With the development of a male contraceptive pill that got him shouted down at a world population control conference in Ceausescu's Romania by Betty Friedan and the other American feminists. Why didn't Betty Friedan want a male pill? Quando o homem disser que está tomando pela gente vai acreditar. Vocês sabem o que vocês são, o que vocês merecem. Because a, she wouldn't trust men who claim to have taken it. Para fazer a trans aí embora. And b, she wanted women to be in control. Eu fiquei atordoado porque as outras mulheres se levantaram também. Que pílula masculina nenhuma. Senhor Coutinho got a better hearing in China. Mas essa pílula que eu comecei a desenvolver com os chineses e estive na China inúmeras vezes. With whose government? Também com controle da natalidade eu fui a primeira vez. He worked very closely for very many years. Ministério de controle da natalidade que era tudo governado por mulheres. As they sought to limit population growth. Fui duas vezes a convite deles para conversar a respeito disso que eu estava tentando, eu tinha esperança de conversar com eles. Why a communist country now the world's number two economy? Que a China, país comunista, é hoje o segundo país do mundo em termos econômicos, atrás apenas dos Estados Unidos da América, sabe por quê? Porque fez o controle da natalidade. Because of birth control i.e. because of him. But it didn't stop the Chaikoms killing him. Dead of the Chinese coronavirus at the age of 90, the prince of Itapoa and king of contraception, Elsimar Coutinho. He may yet have the last laugh on the Politburo when the bantam roosters of China's one-child policy come home to roost. That'll do it for our show. I'll be back this evening.
with the latest episode in our current tale for our time, my contemporary inversion of The Prisoner of Zender, The Prisoner of Windsor, now rocketing toward its conclusion. Thank you for your many kind comments thereon. Beth Williams, a Stein clubber from New Jersey, doesn't know what she's going to do without the Ruritanian Chancer Rudy Elfberg. Mark, don't let this end in 2020. That would be too cruel. This year has been heinous enough. Keep Rudy. I need Rudy. Ooh, dearie, dearie, Beth. Don't say we're going to have to rewrite the end to leave open the possibility of a lame sequel. Well, we will think about it. Laura's Link's coming tomorrow. Don't you miss it. Stay safe, stay free. Join us next time for another edition of The Mark Stein Show. The Mark Stein Show is a production of Mark Stein Enterprises and Oak Hill Media. reserved.